that you made one. You know, I really don't know how many actually make New Year's resolutions anymore, but it's not a bad idea. The beginning of a new year is a good time to take a look at our life, to see where it's been and where it's going, to evaluate the past and chart a course for the future. It's also a good time to make any changes that need to be made, and that's where the resolutions generally come in. Now, some resolutions are rather trivial, like losing 10 pounds or vowing to exercise three times a week. But other resolutions can be very important, especially if they deal with priorities that need to be changed or sinful habits that need to be broken. Those resolutions need to be faced with resolve. And Peter has some things to say to us in the first six verses of the fourth chapter of his first letter that will give us the resolve we need to keep the most important resolutions in our life. He encourages us to submit in the present, break with the past, and look to the future. To begin, we submit in the present. First chapter, I mean, First Peter chapter 4. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, we've already noticed that Peter has a lot to say about submission in his letter. And fundamental to everything he has had to say is the underlying fact that we need to be in submission to the will of God. We are to surrender to his will and stop living for the lusts of men. Now, what are these lusts? Well, the lusts of men are the things that drive men, the desires, the things they strive to obtain or achieve. And Peter makes it clear that we should no longer be motivated by the things that motivate unbelievers. That's a tall order. Instead, he says, we should be living solely for the will of God. His desires should be our desires. His will our will. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we will have to go through life like an ascetic monk having no worldly goods without the things that other men want. You know, all men have basic needs that they want to see met, and God has promised to meet our needs. In fact, he has promised to open the windows of heaven and pour out upon us a blessing until it overflows if we'll put him first and honor him with what we do have. But he doesn't want the fulfillment of fleshly lusts, fleshly desires to be the reason we live. He loves us too much for that. He knows that fleshly lusts can never be fulfilled. You know, more 
is never enough. The latest is never as good as what's coming next. So it's foolish to live for the lusts of men. It's also sinful because it's selfish. We're not here to live for self. We're here to do the will of God, the one who created us and placed us here. You know, Christ didn't come to earth to do as he pleased. He came to earth to please the Father, and that's why we are here as well. To do anything less is to fall short of our reason for being. And that, quite frankly, is not only foolish and unfulfilling, it's sinful. In fact, the word translated sin in verse 1 actually means to fall short, to miss the mark. Peter says we should stop falling short. We should cease from sin. And he tells us how to do it. He says that we will cease from sin if we suffer in the flesh, as Christ suffered in the flesh. But what does suffering have to do with ceasing from sin? Well, some believe Peter is saying that if we have to suffer for our faith, we won't take it lightly. We'll be more committed to it and we'll therefore stop sinning. And there's an element of truth to that. If our faith costs us something, we do take it seriously. But I believe when Peter speaks of Christ having suffered in the flesh, he's not talking about discrimination and alienation or even physical suffering, such as beatings and floggings. He's talking about death. Jesus suffered death. He went all the way to the cross in his suffering. And it's only when we go all the way to death of self that we cease from sinning. And as you know, that is required of us. For as Paul said in Romans 6, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed. From sin. And that's not only being freed from the consequences of sin, it's being freed from the power of sin, being freed from sin itself. If we die to self, we can live for God. We can surrender our life to Him, we can surrender to His will. We can resolve to make those changes that need to be made so we can live in accordance to the will of God. And then once that resolution has been resolved, we must make a break with the past. Verses 3 and 4. For the time already is past, for the time already past, is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation 
and they malign you. And if you die to self, things are going to change. And for some, they're going to change dramatically. The behaviors that characterized much of their life will have to be forsaken. Now, if you were raised in a Christian home and made a commitment to Christ at an early age, the changes may not be quite as obvious. And you may have been spared from some of the excesses that Peter speaks of here. You know, I have never suffered from a hangover or discovered that I did something stupid the night before that I didn't know I was doing. You know, I always know when I'm doing something stupid. (laughs) You know, I've been spared a lot of heartache because I've never climbed into a bottle to have a good time. I learned at an early age that to be filled with the Spirit of God, you don't need to be filled with spirits to have fun. I've never had to go through what Solomon writes about in Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine. Those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea. Or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. <laughs> I've been spared from all that. And I trust many of you have too. And I hope that the young people in our body will make wise choices and be spared from that as well. But having said that, I don't want to give the impression that those who have never pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, and drinking parties have nothing to repent of. We've all been selfish, and we all need to die to self. Some of our idolatries, some of the things we put first in our life, may not have been quite as abominable as the things done by those who carried out the desires of the Gentiles, those who didn't know God, and quite frankly, those who make obvious changes in their lifestyle are going to have an even harder time breaking with the past. Not only because old habits die hard, but because old relationships can hinder the changes that need to be made. Those they ran with will be surprised by the change, and they won't like it. And if they can't get them back into the old crowd and the old excess of dissipation, they will malign them. The NIV says they will heap abuse upon them. 
You know, when someone makes a change for the better, it makes those who continue to live as he used to live look worse. And they will react. We better expect it. But as Peter says, the time already passed is sufficient for you to have lived like a Gentile. You've already had enough time for that. And then remember, he's writing this to Christians. Now, some Christians are slow to let go of their old ways. Even after coming to Christ and professing him as Lord, they live as they have always lived, with the exception of some added religious activities. Peter indicates that it's time to make the changes you know you should make. And if those changes are dramatic, you should expect opposition. Your old friends aren't going to like it. They're not going to like it. Now, I do not believe it's always necessary nor advisable to break off all past associations when you decide to take seriously your Christian commitment. Your unbelieving friends should be your primary mission field. You've got something to share with them. And if you have any Christian friends who don't share your enthusiasm for the changes that you're making, maybe they need to be encouraged to change with you if change is called for. But if anyone stands in your way and attempts to keep you from becoming what Christ wants you to be, you may need to break with them with the same resolve that is necessary to break from your past sins. That's hard. Friendships are very important to us. Relationships are central to, to who we are. But if old relationships are keeping you from becoming all Christ wants you to be, you may need to break that relationship. Now, we're not talking about breaking a marriage relationship here. We can't let our walk with the Lord become an excuse for breaking up a home. Scriptures make it very clear that that God may use us and a faithful witness to draw a disobedient mate back into relationship with them, and we'll just stick it out. But those other relationships may need to be let go. It's not easy. But the key to finding the resolve to break with sin and break with those who would keep us in a circle of sin is to look to the future. Verses 5 and 6. Speaking of those who would keep their hand on us, he says, But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Judgment Day is coming. And those who would draw us back into a life of dissipation or excessive and harmful indulgences in the things that the world brings pleasure will have to give an account to God for what they did and what they tried to do to us. 
if they're still alive and unrepentant when Jesus comes back for us, they will have to face the one who judges the living before they're condemned to death. And if they have died, they will be resurrected only to be condemned to eternal death by the one who judges the dead. And make no mistake, they will be condemned. For anyone who has to give an account for his life without the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ will be found guilty and be condemned. There is no escaping judgment day apart from the grace of God made available through faith in his Son. And he has made that grace available to all, the living and the dead. Now, when Peter says the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead, it's not clear what he means. And there are at least three ways to interpret it. The first is to tie it to what he said back in chapter 3, verse 19, about Jesus making proclamation to spirits in prison, interpreting this to mean that he preached the gospel to those who are dead. But we dismissed that idea last week for several reasons, including the fact that it carries with it the idea that there's a second chance to accept the gospel after death. The second way is to simply suggests that it, it means that the apostles and others have preached the gospel to those who are spiritually dead. Preaching to the dead, preaching to the spiritually dead. The third way is to understand it is, is that it's talking about Christians who were dead at the time of the writing of this letter and Christians who perhaps had been judged and condemned by the world for their faith who were at that moment living in the Spirit according to the will of God. It's a picture of what was going on, how that those who had paid the price for their faith and had died because of it, perhaps, were now living in the Spirit, according to the will of God. Now, I, I think that uh, either of those last two interpretations is acceptable, and they make sense. But the important thing to note is simply that Christ has offered life to all. But we have to receive it. We have to accept it. We have to be changed by it. Eternal life can be ours. And even if we have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death before eternity begins, even though we may have to share in the judgment of death that was passed upon mankind after the first sin, we will live forever in the Spirit according to the will and plan of God if we have ceased from sin by sharing in the death of Christ and dying to self and by breaking with our sinful past. The resolve to do that comes from looking to the future, a future of judgment and condemnation if we refuse to change or a future of eternal joy in the presence of our Maker if we choose to become like Him and cease to sin. And today is the day to cease from sin. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, 
having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. If you haven't already done so or you need to do it again, today is the day to confirm your resolve to cease from sin. Submit in the present, break with the past, and look to the future. If you would live in the Spirit according to the will of God. The change is called for. Today is the day to change. Let's stand. Thank you.